Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 1, as Gino indicated. We're uh, going to attempt to do verses 8 through 17 tonight. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. And let's pray before we get started. Father, thanks for the word. We're uh, always excited about a new book, each book. They each have their own special anticipation, Lord, that builds in our heart, depending on their theme. Romans is one of those books, Lord, that seems to be elevated above others, and we certainly understand that. We thank you, Lord, for your word in general and for this word specifically tonight. We pray that it would enrich us with, its, uh, with understanding, that we would be empowered, Lord, by uh, knowing what you've done for us and what you continue to do, and that there would be real simple understanding of the gospel message and what it is and the power that it has, Lord, to accomplish salvation in the lives of its hearers. So, guide us, Lord, and direct us as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. There are times I almost regret not seeing the Great Wall of China when I was in Beijing back in the late 90s. We were smuggling Bibles, and uh, as it turned out, uh, one of the young men on our team was having an extremely difficult time. He had the worst bout of homesickness uh, I've ever seen in a person, and uh, uh, it was either send him home by himself or hang out with him, and so I hung out with him, and uh, you know, uh, so I didn't see anything in China other than him, uh, and but uh, but you know I don't really, and I came back and said, so did you see you know the Great Wall? No, did you see Chairman Mao? Yeah, no. Uh, what did you see? Just you know, airport and back and my room, and the guards, and you know, all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but then I remember the, the thing that was the, the best part of the trip for me, and, and the reason I don't regret seeing any uh, sights, is that one night we had an arrangement where we could go and visit with an, uh, a couple, secret underground church kind of stuff. And uh, it was really a blast. We, uh, we were in this crazy, the Beijing Hotel, which you might think is a nice hotel, uh, but it isn't. And, uh, you know, it was one night we were in our hotel room and, and uh, a Chinese guy just walked in and looked around. Uh, and we said hi and, you know, and he just looked around, looked in our suitcases and left. And we thought, okay, this isn't, this isn't Kansas anymore, you know. Uh, and so then, uh, but this one night we had to go at night kind of under cover of darkness. It's a long story. I'll cut it down for you. But we were going down the hall in our hotel and... And there's a guy sleeping at the end of the hall, like he's on guard, you know, and stuff. And so you have to sneak around. And we were following this other, uh, actually a Japanese Christian who had accompanied us uh, to China. We had to follow her a safe distance and do all this crossing of streets and changing of coats. And so, I mean, it was really pretty clandestine. And then we, we ended up in this apartment complex and met with this Chinese couple. He was a professor at the university. And, uh, of course, they... You know, they couldn't really let everybody know that they were Christians or they'd be persecuted. And uh, I kept getting too loud. I was so excited, you know. So they wanted to sing songs and stuff. And we were there for about an hour, two hours, you know, just I didn't understand Chinese. And the Japanese guide didn't understand Chinese. And they didn't understand English. And so it was kind of a riot, you know, really. But uh, we ended up just saying hallelujah a lot, you know, and pointing to things. But uh, it, it was a lot more fun 
uh, and endearing than any kind of sightseeing, as you can imagine. And I was thinking about that today um, when I read the opening verses of uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. Because as we'll see, the Apostle Paul wanted to go to Rome, but it wasn't the Colosseum that interested him, it was the church. And not a building, not the building where the church met, but the people whom he had never even met. I remember when we went to uh, Honduras, to Tegucigalpa, they have a huge, beautiful cathedral there that they built just for the visit of the Pope one year. Uh, and after he visited, they, no one uses it anymore for anything. They, they went back to their tiny Catholic church, you know, uh, that's kind of off to the side. Uh, and yet tourists come there all the time and they think, oh, look at this, this beautiful cathedral. But Paul, he just wanted to go to Rome and hang out with the Christians. And he says in verse 8, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you, for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Before he got too deeply into the explanation of the gospel, Paul showed the Roman believers that the gospel had had an effect in his life. The gospel he preached caused him to thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of them. You have to realize he had never seen any of them. He didn't know them. When he finally does arrive in Rome, there would be those among them who actually resented Paul. Nevertheless, the gospel had so affected his heart that he couldn't help but be thankful to God for them. It's so important to be right to be right about God, to have the correct doctrine. Uh, Certainly we can't say enough about that. But it's also important to be affected by it in a way that reveals itself by loving those whom God loves. None of us are perfect. Uh, You know, some of you come closer, you know, than I do. See see how I've changed in my old age? Normally I would have said I'm a lot closer than you, but I can't pull that off anymore. So, but, uh, you know, none of us are perfect. We all have our moments and we all have our struggles and all that. But uh, sometimes there's a real disparity between the the teaching that a person can do and the, wow, that's, whoa, really, wow. And then just the, the person that is doing that in terms of just being kind of a brute and, just being mean-spirited or, or, you know, in different ways. And, and I'm not saying that a person like that isn't a Christian. I'm just thinking that, you know, the, the Paul, who has got to be, right, the smartest guy ever in terms of biblical Christianity, I mean, he, you know, he wants to talk about justification by faith and all of that, and he says, man, the gospel affected me so much. I love you guys. I thank God for you. And you have to think, is he sincere? Is this real? He doesn't even know us. Uh, but, but it was the gospel that had changed his heart. And so let's make sure always that we have correct doctrine, because if we don't, we're going to end up someplace we don't want to be. Uh, but also let's make sure that it's having its effect on us. It says here, he was thankful through Jesus Christ. Uh, among the things that that means is that he saw these Romans the way Jesus did. He saw them through the compassion of Jesus He saw them as works in progress on their way to completion and perfection. Uh, I I don't, I don't know about you, I don't like long-term restoration projects. 
fact, I don't like any projects at all, really, it, it, to truth be known. I, you know, I just soon hire everything out. But some people you know, on the, are on the other end of that spectrum, and they can, they can sand a fender for 20 years, you know, and just to get that just right, you know, because, you know, once that thing gets painted after they die, they want to make sure that, you know, that, that, you know, I sanded that fender, you know, kind of a thing. And so uh, the idea is that, you know, we're all at different stages and places. And even, even if you've walked with the Lord for a long time, there could be something going on in your life at any particular time where, you know, we just have to remember when we look at each other that, you know, you're a work in progress. Uh, and, and there's actually a lot more work to be done, you know, with you. But, but the Lord's going to do it. He promised he would do it. And so I'm going to see you the way Jesus sees you. It's, it's some, with some people, it's harder than others, you know, to see them as a completed uh, work. But the Lord is going to do that. Uh, the Roman church of the first century had an incredible reputation. Their faith was spoken of throughout the whole of the Roman world. Sometimes world means the whole world. As in, God so loved the world. It's clear from the context that he loved the whole world of men, all those who have ever been uh, conceived and born from all of time. And other times, the word world is being used as we would in everyday language to mean something less than the whole world. Context will determine the meaning. I talked about going to China. Sometimes I just flippantly say, well, I've been all over the world. You know, well, I haven't really. I've been to some countries. I've traveled a little bit, especially, you know, when I was younger doing missions work and stuff. But I haven't ever really, I don't think, been east of, well, just until last year, I got east of Arizona. You know, and we got to Texas. You know, I haven't really been, so I haven't been to the whole world. And, but if I said that, you would understand that. Uh, but don't let that fool you. Sometimes world does mean world. And when, G, when God says uh, in, when John writes in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he's not talking about some small group of people. He's talking about the whole world. And not just the whole world as it exists right now. He's talking about the whole world of men forever. Now, if I mentioned a particular church, something would come to your mind about them and their gatherings. I don't want to do this right now because it, it, it might get weird. But uh, that's how they are spoken of throughout Kings County. You know what I'm talking about. You say, you run into somebody, hey, what, what about this church over here? And you think, oh yeah, that church does this. You know, they're famous for this. Or I heard this about them. And so churches do have a reputation. In fact, sometimes they have several reputations depending on who you talk to. Um, and so that means we have a reputation. How would you describe our church? Uh, how would you say to others uh, our church is? And it's an interesting question. And I'd invite you to send me an email, an encouraging email, uh, about how you would describe our church. Uh, I have, I, yeah, anyway. Now, I'm serious. You know, just, you know, if somebody, when people ask you and they just say, well, where do you go to church? Well, I go to Calvary Hanford. Uh, what's that like? What would you say? Uh, it's, it'd be interesting to me to, you know, I remember years ago, there's a, and she's still in town. She's a sweet gal. Um, uh, they used to go here, then they moved out of town. Now they're going to a church in Kingsbury. Really sweet folks. And uh, she came up to me one Sunday and she goes, she goes, I'm going to always remember you as the pastor that told me that Jesus was coming back. And I thought, well, you mean that as a criticism, but I'm pretty excited about that, you know. And so I'd say that's a fair statement, right? Ready or not? Jesus is coming, yeah. So, you know, that's going to be on, what do you want on your tombstone? Uh, you know, 
pepperoni and that. So anyway, you remember that campaign? You remember the old what do you want on your tombstone campaign? Who remembers the ad campaign for tombstone pizza? All right, because when I get home, Pam's going to say, why do you say things like that? No one, no one knows what you're talking about. Paul takes an unusual oath in verse 9. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul takes an unusual oath saying, God is my witness. I'm not at all sure why he felt it was necessary to uh, appeal to God. Commentators say it's because since they didn't know him, he wanted to emphasize that what he was about to say was true. Um, I guess... What's interesting to me about this, it's a reminder that God is a witness to our spiritual life. Paul could say, God is my witness. When I say, I did this in my devotions, or I prayed for you, or I did this or this, God was a witness of of those things. Now, immediately, I always think of that in a negative way. Oh, God's busting me out, you know, and stuff. But as long as you're just honest, uh, that's a great thing to have God as a witness, you know, to, to have him backing you up. And so just be honest. You know, don't, don't uh, go beyond to try and impress people. You know, um, you know if, if you didn't pray for anybody, you don't have to tell them, you, yeah, I didn't pray for you at all, I'm a jerk, you know. But you don't have to say, oh, yeah, I've been praying without ceasing for you and behind your back. What's behind your back? Oh, oh my fingers are crossed. Oh, golly, you know, and stuff. So, and, and, you know, there's a tendency, I think a lot of us, just a human tendency to go beyond, you know, even if you get up at three in the morning, especially if you get up at three in the morning and spend the first seven hours of your day in prayer, don't tell anybody because you've just ruined it. It's like the Pharisees who fasted and made themselves look like they were fat. What's the matter with you? I'm fasting for God, you know, and, and so nobody needs to know, but don't go beyond. Don't lie about your spirituality. Just be yourself. Um, one of the things I do like about Calvary Chapel is people say everybody, say, you know, when their people seem so normal at a Calvary Chapel, for the most part. I always have to have a disclaimer, but you know, people are just so normal. They dress normally. They talk normally. They don't, you know, they talk the same way when they're teaching as when they're talking. And there's not a whole lot of real fluff. It's just, it's just real and natural. And nobody's trying to impress anybody, obviously, you know, uh, I mean, I'm certainly not trying to impress anybody. I'm not, if I am, I'm not doing a very good job of it, you know. So, uh, and that's the idea. Just be yourself and God is your witness uh, to your spirituality. Paul says that he constantly prayed for them, but he establishes that it was out of joy rather than duty, out of a relationship rather than a religion. He served God, he says, with his spirit. It was a matter of the heart. It, it, he didn't serve God, you know, with his flesh or with his hands or with his works. He says, it's, it's out of my spirit that I just can't help but pray for you 24-7. Now, he doesn't mean he was on his knees 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Obviously not. Praying without ceasing must be something outside the physical realm. It's knowing you are in constant communication with God and an attitude of being in his presence. It must include actual prayer. I mean, it does, you, you can't, you remember, God is your witness. You can't say, I'm praying all the time, and, and then you're never praying. Uh, but the idea is that you're always apt to pray. You're, you have an attitude of prayer. You believe prayer works. You're in communion with God. Verse 10, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Now, Paul was called to preach to the Gentiles. And since Rome was the center of the Gentile world, to Rome he wanted to go. His prayer was passionate, but it was always subordinate to the will of God. 
Paul was a guy whose philosophy was to go unless God stopped him. Now, others are more stay unless God prompts them. We immediately think that the go guy is more spiritual than the prompt guy. I don't see one way of thinking as more spiritual than the other. And actually, either can be unspiritual. You can force your way into some service, some position that is really not God's will for you. I've seen that over the years. I, I've, and some of them have admitted to it. That, you know, I know guys who have been, you know, gotten into positions of ministry and, and struggled their whole life and then realized you know, 20, 30 years later that they weren't really called to it, uh, that it was just something they wanted to do. Uh, you, know, you seem like a go type, but the question becomes, this is an, an old question, you know, were you sent or did you just went? Sometimes people say, you get it? So sometimes, you know, we want, even Paul was sent out. Remember the, the church there at Antioch, they, they were praying and they laid hands on him and they heard from the Holy Spirit and then they prayed some more. And then they sent Paul out as a missionary because that's what the Holy Spirit said to do. And, and so he didn't just go, he was sent But you can also refuse some service, some position that is the will of God for you for a variety of reasons. You just always beg up, no, it's it's not the right time, I'm not in the right place, I don't know enough, you know, those kinds of things. So, if you're always breaking down doors, that's a problem. There is that kind of personality some people have where they're just going to break down the door. I've decided this is what I'm going to do. If I can't do it here, I'll do it here. I'm going to, I can't be stopped. I see a door, I'm going through it. It's closed, I don't care, I'll break it down. Other people, wow, look at that open door. I think I'll just sit here and see what happens. Maybe someone else will walk through it. So it's a metaphor, but I think you understand what I'm talking about. So you're not more spiritual because you're a go guy. You're not less spiritual because you're a prompt person. Uh, But sometimes you have to go through the door. Other times you don't want to break it down. It's up to us to figure those things out. You say, well, how do I know? I don't know. I I figure that out for myself. You figure it out. Uh, Get good counsel. Pray about it. Get into your relationship with the Lord. God is your witness. He's with you. He'll help you and he'll uh, establish it for you. Verse 11 says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of you and me. Now, Paul said he wanted to impart some spiritual gift, and in our minds we might immediately gravitate to the thought that because he was an apostle, he could, by the laying on of his hands, be a channel through which God would impart spiritual gifts uh, to the believers. While we do practice the laying on of hands for various things, including when people want uh, God to gift them or uh, give them the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it seems from what he says next that Paul means something less exclusive. He was simply describing what happens or what can happen in the meetings of the church. Paul had a very high regard for the fellowship of God's people with one another. You'd you'd expect that of an apostle, these guys in the first century who went around laying the foundation of the church. That, you know, they had the, the foundation that no one else can lay, that is Jesus Christ. And then they built on that foundation, they laid the foundation on top of that for the church. And he had a very high regard for it. And he wasn't just talking about friendship and socializing. Nothing wrong with that. That's great. Uh, this isn't a slam on that. But here he was talking about meetings of the church. 
He saw them as times when the mutual faith of believers would encourage everyone in attendance as they exercised their various spiritual gifts. He would impart, which means share, his gift or gifts, such as teaching. In doing so, they would be established, meaning they would be strengthened. The believers would also impart or share their gifts, and the result would be the encouragement and edification of the whole body of Jesus Christ. And so a church, you know, like Wednesday night, Sunday morning, smaller meetings, larger meetings, it doesn't matter. There's a lot of ministry going on. Um, At a church like ours, where we hold the Word of God in high esteem, as well we should, because God says he values it above his very name. He esteems it above his own name. So we want to esteem God's word and not get away from it. Uh, it seems like everything centers around the word. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but a lot is going on in with children and with serving and with ushering and all these other... All of these are ways that we are imparting gifts to one another or sharing our gifts with one another for the common good, for the mutual faith, so that we're all built up in our most holy faith and that as we leave the gathering to socialize or evangelize or whatever it is that we do, uh, we're able to do it with a greater sense of urgency and joy and power and all the things that God provides for us. And so, uh, is the church important? And by that I mean the gathering of God's saints? It absolutely is. It it is essential. Uh, And Paul goes, hey, I'm going to Rome. I've... I, I'm guessing he went to the Colosseum because he was a sports guy. He would have had ESPN, uh, you know, on his phone, uh, you know, to check the Angels' scores and stuff like that. Get it, the Angels? <laughs> Probably not the Devil Rays. Yeah. But anyway, uh, you know, he. But he was going to Rome, the center of the world, you know, at that time, to be with these Christians. Uh, and to meet with them, not just to, you know, hang out with them and, you know, do stuff. He did that too, but he wanted to meet with them so that they could impart things to one another. And then in verse 13, he says, Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but it was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. If you follow Paul's missionary journeys, the three of them, you see that he was hindered in at least four different ways. First of all, the Holy Spirit sometimes hindered him. For example, when Paul wanted to go to Asia to preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit hindered him, uh, prevented him, and instead he got the Macedonian call uh, and went down to Philippi and went in that direction. So the Holy Spirit actually hindered him. The devil sometimes hindered Paul. He says so outright in 1 Thessalonians 1.18. He says, Satan hindered us. Uh, and, and you might think, oh, well, wait a minute, I thought... Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Well, that's true. He doesn't say the devil possessed me. He says the devil hindered me. Reminds you of Daniel in, uh, in the Old Testament where Daniel's praying and God dispatches an answer to him. But, you know, the prince of Persia, this demonic being, is wrestling with Gabriel until he tag teams Michael, you know. And he says, hey, Michael, I need help, you know. And Michael comes and then Gabriel comes with the rest of the message. Uh, and so the devil can hinder. Other times, the pressing needs of the churches he had founded hindered him from going to Rome. He had things that he had to deal with. And then the fourth thing that Paul warns us about in Galatians 5, 7, uh, is false teachers. He says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Uh, And so there are hindrances. Some are for the betterment of your walk, or at least they can be to the betterment of your walk as you learn what God is teaching you. But others are not. And so we're to ask ourselves, what, if anything, is hindering me right now 
from really walking with and serving Jesus Christ? And, and that's just an honest question we should ask ourselves from time to time. Is there anything or what is hindering me? Uh, who is hindering me from doing these things? And is there something I ought to do about that? Can I get rid of it? Can I be free of it? Or is this something that God has constructed uh, for me to do, uh, you know, to hang into? If, if it isn't something you can change, then don't get frustrated or lose focus. Write it out and learn what God is teaching you. And so, so there's things we bring into our own lives that would hinder us. Get rid of those. Sometimes you're just in a situation not of your own choosing and you think, I could serve you so much more, Lord, if I was over here and the Lord's just not opening the door. Don't get frustrated. Just hang out there and, and serve the Lord. Uh, you know, you're being hindered, but it's for a good reason. Now, Paul speaks in verse 13 of having some fruit among you also, just as among other Gentiles. By fruit, he seems to be anticipating that many more non-believers would come to Christ through his teaching the believers and preaching to non-believers. Paul thought the gospel ought to have an effect when it was taught and preached. He, he, he's the, he believed that the gospel was a command for men to get saved. Uh, when he's before the, the guys there and they said, Paul, it sounds like you even want me to be saved. And he says, I want you, I want everybody to be saved. You know, the gospel is a command to be saved. It doesn't mean there's always going to be the effect that we desire or, you know, that kind of a thing. But Paul had an expectation of what he's going to say in a minute that I am giving words that are the power of God unto salvation. And for the hearts that will receive them, they are absolutely life-changing and radical. And so wherever he went, he had an expectation that the word of God would not return void, but that it would have an offense. So he says, I'm coming to Rome, and you know what? Uh, there's going to be fruit when I come, because God has sent me, and uh, I, I'm just going to watch what the Lord does. Uh, verse 14, I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, to wise and to unwise. So much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Paul was a debtor. Now, we think of that as a very negative term, and it can be. His idea of debt wasn't a lack, however. It seems more like an overflow. He had been given so much by the Lord, he felt he was indebted and had to give back by sharing from the abundance that he had been given. And Paul just thought, man, God, you've given me so much. Uh, his understanding of the gospel and of salvation and the blessings, and when you compare that to the, you know, the suffering that he went through that he thought was just for a moment, and he called it a light affliction. I love what Paul considers a light affliction. If you were talking to the Apostle Paul, you couldn't complain at all. I mean, I don't think... I, I'm sure he was gracious and, and all, but, but he's not the kind of guy you would want to complain to about your job. You know, I'm not saying... No, don't get me wrong. You know, we all have done that. I've done that. But... Um, not lately, but uh, years ago, before I was in the ministry. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. And yesterday. No, that's not true. But, uh, you know, Paul's not, because, you know, Paul, you're looking at Paul, and just as you're saying, I can see, you know, you could see Paul if he was at the church, you know, and he's shaking hands afterwards, and, and oh, you know, there's, there's, you know, what's his name, telling Paul his story and stuff, and you think, yeah, there's Paul. He, he probably survived a shipwreck to get here. 
He probably floated in on a board, you know, with no clothes on and no money. Uh, or he was beat up by robbers, you know, and he's still bleeding, you know, on half of his face and stuff. But he's pretty. And, and, and your problem is what? You're having, a, you're having what kind of a problem? You know, can't figure out when and how to discipline your children. Let's talk about that, you know, and stuff. But, you know, so Paul, he's not the kind of guy and, and you wanted to complain to. Uh, he was in debt, he said. On the other hand, he said, yeah, I don't consider any of that. That's a small thing. I have such a great debt to repay because God saved me on the road. I used to kill Christians. I was on my way to kill Christians. I was the biggest persecutor of the church. And God saw fit to save me. Uh, how can I be anything other than a debtor to the gospel? Now, Paul was ready to preach to those who were cultured as well as those who were crude, to those who were intellects as well as those who were ignorant. The gospel is a universal message. It's not an Eastern message. It's not a Western message. It's not an ancient message or a modern message, if you get my meaning. It is a message for everyone, everywhere, throughout all of human history. You know, some things only work locally. And by locally, it can mean, you know, within a people group or a country or something like that. There are some philosophies, some beliefs that, that you know, can work a little bit locally depending on a certain... The gospel works, if I can use that term, all the time, everywhere, with everybody, throughout all of time. It is God's universal message for the universal problem of sin, and it's applicable. And I only keep saying this all the time because... You know, it wasn't until I became a Christian that I started to realize that the gospel went back to the Garden of Eden. And actually it went back before God even created the heavens and the earth. That It wasn't something Jesus and the boys came up with in the first century like most people think. I've heard a lot of people say, I remember when I was going to college, that, well, Christianity is a relatively new religion. You know, if you, and, and the thought was, if you want to be right, you go with the old religions, you know. You get into some kind of an Eastern religion, you know, or something that existed before Jesus came on the scene with his newfangled way of thinking and stuff. And then you think, yeah, that, that's, that's stupid. I'm sorry. How many PhDs do you have? PH stupid. You know, I mean, it's just Christianity starts in the garden when, as far as our history is concerned, when God says, here's what's going to happen now. You've sinned. I'm going to come and I'm going to die for your sins and I'm I'm going to solve this problem, and it moves forward in a progressive revelation after that. And the gospel message never changes, but how we deliver it can change if we are truly wanting to reach people with it. We should not expect non-believers to conform to our presentations, to learn our jargon in order to hear the message of salvation. Without changing the gospel in any way, we must present it in ways that make sense to folks across Every demographic. The fact that the message doesn't have to change and never changes doesn't mean that people aren't different. Uh, and I think churches go off the rails sometimes because we really want people to become like us before they get saved. And we use, uh, sometimes you can't help but use big Bible words because they're in the Bible, but you have to define them. But uh, I, to me, there's nothing worse than somebody who uses words that. Uh, that a junior high student can't understand. If, if you're, and I do it too, we all do it because, you know, hopefully we're a little above the junior high grade, you know, and stuff. But I was told one time, and I think it's true, you should be able to, to you know, in your preaching or in your sharing of the gospel, it should be understandable at about a junior high level. Now, here's the problem. 
you don't want to be at a junior high level because people think you're stupid. They don't think you're smart. And, and that's, you know, people sit there and you see it on their faces. They think, well, he's talking to me like I'm in junior high. I want him to use big words. I want to think that this is intellectual. And there's guys that do that. That's fine. But, you know, how many people are you going to lose? You know, when, if you leave a Bible study and you think, wow, that was really intellectual. I, it was so intellectual, I don't understand a word of it. But maybe someday I'll be that smart. Uh, I, I think the best Bible study is one that anybody really could understand. There may be a word or two that you don't understand. Uh, the word or two, I don't, sometimes I think, I don't know what I'm saying, but, uh, you know, but it's the right word. But you understand what I mean. Uh, we want to be simple, and we want to reach people where they're at. You don't have to become that person. You don't necessarily have to, you know, uh, I mean, sometimes missionaries do. You get it totally into the culture. But, um, you know, the gospel's the same, but our message can be geared towards different groups. Now, Paul preached the gospel, he said he's ready to preach the gospel in Rome, as he had elsewhere. John Phillips, in his commentary in the book of Romans, said this. He says, when Paul preached the gospel at Jerusalem, the religious center of the world, he was mobbed. When he preached it at Athens, the intellectual center of the world, he was mocked. When he preached at Rome, the legislative center of the world, he was martyred. Now, mostly we're going to be mocked, uh, probably not mobbed or martyred, Possible, but unlikely. Uh, and being mocked can, help us, can make us feel ashamed. And so in verse 16 he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. <clears throat> there are a lot of reasons why you might be ashamed of the gospel in the first century. Among Jews you would be ashamed because they considered it a shameful thing for a person to be crucified. It was what Romans did to criminals. And they were crucified outside the city naked in a very horrible way. And so when you say, hey, good news, your Messiah has come and he was crucified outside the city naked hanging on the cross. That's pretty shameful. Uh, and, and it was a stumbling block to the Jews. Among Greeks, you might be ashamed because they consider the message of the cross to be inferior or ignorant. We still face criticisms today, especially the accusation of ignorance. Uh, People like to think that Christians are people who haven't really thought things through. You're, you're one brick short of a full load, basically, because you know science has proven there, there is no God, and the, the higher criticism shows that the Bible is full of errors, you know, and all those kinds of things. And, and people just think you're stupid if you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, and they mock you. The gospel, though, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. One author wrote, the gospel is not advice to people suggesting that they lift themselves. It is power. It lifts them up. Paul does not say that the gospel brings power, but that it is power and God's power at that. Rome was reputed to be the center of world power, but despite all her power, she was powerless to change men's lives. The ancient philosopher Seneca called Rome a cesspool of iniquity. And the ancient writer Juvenal called it a filthy sewer into which the dregs of the empire flood. Salvation has the basic meaning of being delivered. The gospel delivers sinners from the penalty and the punishment and the power of sin. Notice the emphasis on believes, not on behaving. God does not ask men to behave a certain way in order to be saved, but rather to believe. Historically, this message was preached for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Jesus told his first followers to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit, then preach in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, 
and the uttermost parts of the world. We live in the time when the gospel is going out to the uttermost. Uh, The gospel is given to us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. I'll read it to you. It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved. I deliver to you, first of all, what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So that's the Gospel. That's simple enough. But here's the question. Since God is infinitely holy, how can He save sinners and receive them into His presence based solely on what they believe? It has to do with what is here called the righteousness of God. Verse 17, For in It, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, the word righteousness is used one way or another 60 times in this book, and it's used in at least three ways. First, it is used to describe the attribute of God by which he always does what is right, just, proper, and consistent with his nature. Second, the righteousness of God refers to the method by which he saves ungodly sinners, And third, it refers to the perfect standing which God provides for those who believe on Jesus. The righteousness of God, then, has to do with how God is able to save ungodly sinners and give them a right standing before Him without violating His holiness or any other attribute of His nature. It is revealed by the gospel to be from faith to faith. That means the way that God saves sinners consistent with His nature is by faith from beginning to end. It begins with faith and it continues by faith. It is a matter of what they believe, not how they behave. Another word is now introduced in verse 17, the word just. It could also be justified or justification. William Barclay explains the meaning of the ancient Greek word uh, diaku, which means justify. He says, all verbs in Greek which end in double O... Uh, always mean to treat or account or reckon a person as something. If God justifies a sinner, it does not mean that he finds reasons to prove that he was right. It does not even mean at this point that he makes the sinner a good person. It means that God treats the sinner as if he had not been a sinner at all. Justification is the gracious act of God by which he declares a believing sinner righteous on the basis of Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. It says the just shall live by faith, and that could be translated the justified by faith ones shall live, meaning they will have eternal life. A paraphrase would be justification by faith is how God saves sinners and remains holy. God saves ungodly sinners. He gives them a right standing before him without violating his nature, when they believe what Jesus did for them on the cross as their substitute. God justifies them. He declares them righteous because Jesus was both God and man. When a sinner believes in Jesus, God can treat the sinner just as if he'd never sinned at all. He sees the sinner in Jesus Christ and he's able to declare that ungodly sinner righteous. Well, later on in Romans, see, Paul utilized a banking metaphor to illustrate this. He tells us that when a person believes in Jesus, it's like God putting a deposit of righteousness into their account. You ever have somebody deposit money into your account? Automatic deposit. 
When you believe in Jesus Christ, he deposits righteousness in your account and he debits your account sin. So that when he looks in your bank account, you know, on these crime shows, they always look in your bank account to see if you've paid the hitman and stuff, you know. When you look at, you become a Christian, before you're a Christian, if, if you look in your heavenly bank account, it's full of sin. After you get saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, all that is gone and all that's there is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's a little bit crude as an illustration, but it's, it makes the point. The book of Romans will explain that there is no one righteous, nor can you ever become righteous by behaving a certain way. The only way for you to have God's righteousness is for him to declare you righteous, and the only way he can do that is for you to believe in Jesus, the God-man, God incarnate. In verse 17, Paul quoted from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. In Romans, he will quote from the Old Testament more than in all his other letters combined. That tells me that this is no new message. This is the gospel that has been preached from the garden uh, until today and for all time. Justification by faith was God's plan of salvation from the beginning. It is the only possible solution to the problem of sinful men getting right with a holy God. There's no other way that a sinner can be made right before God except through the shed blood of Jesus Christ as his substitute, except by the imputed imparted righteousness of God. I'll close with this quote by E. Stanley Jones. He says, Religions are man's search for God. The gospel is God's search for man. There are many religions, but only one gospel. Amen? All right.